can be turning to John chapter 4. We're in this series of Foundations for Life. And uh, as of last week, we began to look at who is our God? Who is our God? And uh, before I get into the message, here's a book we ordered in the bookstore. It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And uh, amazing thing to have one million copies of this sold. Did you know that in, a, in Christian writing, if a book sells 5,000 copies, it's considered a success? And uh, this is one of the finest books you'll ever read on who is God. You know, uh, would that not be a worthwhile study? Who is our God? And so I, I think we've got about 20 copies. We don't like to get too much inventory. If you wipe it out, we'll order more. And uh, I think what you could do is buy all of them so the second service has none. But that's a book just for your morning devotions. You'll read it over and over. You won't just read it once. So do you read? Three of you do. Do you read? Yeah. Uh, You won't learn much by watching. That will teach you and change your mind. This would be a very profitable thing for you. So, and I get no cut on it. This is for you. Let's pick up as we begin. I want today to show you five things about what God is, five ingredients that you should know, and we'll continue in the weeks to come. We'll look at God's attributes, and uh, I've only taught these in Timothy classes and smaller groups. You got to be very brave to bring this subject to a Sunday morning service. This is why. The law of teaching says you must go from the known to the unknown. And most people don't know at all who God is. And most Christians can't do it. They can't. I love Jesus. Okay, we got Jesus. I love God. Who is God to you? In Acts 17, Paul said, I notice you guys here on Mars Hill are very religious. You've got gods to everything. Matter of fact, You've got an idol dedicated to the unknown God. Acts 17. If you went to India, if you went even to Singapore, the Hindu Hindu temple, and you may have 10,000 gods represented, who is God? Who is God? Uh, Do you have a handle on that? We're going to look at five things. They're um, remarkable. They're simple. But I hope that it will be a help to you. But let's begin the discussion by looking at Jesus talking to a woman who views herself as a theologian. Everybody thinks they are a theologian. They, they know. Let's watch the dialogue and the discussion. We'll pick it up in uh, John 4, verse 16. Jesus meets this woman by the well. Nobody else is there. She's, she's a bad woman in the community, and not to be seen. She's a half-breed. She's a Samaritan, 
and the Samaritans about, oh, they are a blend, about 726, Assyria in the north invaded Israel, and they brought Assyrian Gentile women there, and as they settled, they intermarried with Jewish women, and it created, as it were, a half-breed, what they know, was known as Samaritans. Now, it's one thing to have um, ethnic mixture, but the big thing is the Samaritans built their own temple. They uh, made their own scrolls. They did not accept Judaism. They were, became an alternate place of worship, religion. So it was an ethnicity, a pagan religion, and, and an insult to the Jew that we've been invaded. We can't stand the Samaritans. Jesus said, I must go to Samaria, a no-flight no zone, as it were, for a devout Jew. And besides that, he meets a woman there of a very immoral lifestyle. So here we pick it up. Uh, Jesus talks to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you are right. You have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you are now living with is not your husband. She's a very modern woman. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship the Samaritans what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. You need to underscore that. And ask yourself, do I know what I'm worshiping? You Samaritans worship what you don't know. It, it, all pagan religion is steeped in ignorance. They don't know. They sacrifice children. They pray to gods. Uh, they, their whole worship, man is a worshiping being, but usually what he worships is unknown to him. It's a figment of his imagination. He's created a God uh, with the, get our word, images. They bow to images. Where does that come from? The imagination. They imagine. They give the piece of wood. They give the idol power that it really doesn't have. They transfer it by their mind. So he says, you, you Samaritans, you don't know what you're worshiping. We Jews, we do. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father. How? In spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit, 
God wants to be worshipped in spirit and truth. What in the world does he mean by this? What is being said? When you read the Bible, don't read just words. Read to get meaning. Unless you know what it means, you've read in vain. Bible reading will not change your life. Bible understanding will. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, let's just do some observations before we look at these five characteristics. First of all, the woman thinks worship is tied to a place. Uh, it was a battle over the Samaritans met at Mount Gerizim where the law was read with its blessings. So they said, we've got the right place to worship. The Jews, of course, said you had to be in Jerusalem. First thing he clears up, worship is no longer to be tied to a place. You didn't have to come into this building to worship, did you? Worship is no longer confined to a place. You don't have to be, I'm not any closer to God in Jerusalem than I am in the Bay Area. And I've been to Jerusalem. They say there's more atheists in Palestine and in Israel, probably for the Jewish community than any other place in the world. And that's quite amazing. But he said, worship is not going to be about a place. So forget that. And, you know, we call this the worship center. Well, that's really that's an appropriate name, but it's bad theology. The worship center is you. You're the worshiper, not the building. Right? You see, I'll find out if you're worshiping, if you could ever nod your head on what I'm saying. Because I'm describing to you your God. See, the real worship in this place is not the pews. It's the people. The people. So he said, uh, number one, uh, it's no longer going to be about place. And then he says the astounding thing, you don't know what you're worshiping, but man, you're doing a lot of work, a lot of activity, uh, giving you money maybe, whatever. You could even be a person here doing a lot of stuff, as it were, in the name of religion, but you don't know who you're doing it to. Yeah, your God is whatever. And so he said, God does not want us to be ignorant about who we're worshiping. Ignorance and worship should not go together. Then he says, now this is what he get. When you worship, there's two things that must be involved. Two things. Spirit and truth. Now, what is your Bible? I don't know what translation you have. Was spirit a capital S or a small s in your Bible? How many had a capital? Wow. How many had a small? That's the translation you want to use on this. It was not Holy Spirit he was referring to. Not referring to the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the human spirit. You must worship, and the human spirit, he picks one part, that worship is an internal, with all your heart, with all your being. And so he picks the word spirit. It must come from within you. 
towards God, that my spirit is engaged. Now, why did he say that? Because he told them the religion of Judaism had become externalism. And he said to them in Matthew 15, this people draw nigh to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Quoting Isaiah, they come close with their lips. Oh, great is our God, great, great songs, great, good, all that external ritual, washings, all of that. He said, wait, wait, worship is not externalism. Worship is not ceremonialism. Worship is not uh, uh, going through a ritual around. It's in here. And today you will have either worshiped or not worshiped, and you will either have wasted your time or really redeemed your time. I mean, I see people, you imagine being a speaker here watching people go to their cell phone during the sermon. I said, you didn't come to worship. When do you worship? When do you worship? My, I used to love to commute to seminary. I was driving from Livermore. I had a 7.30 Greek class downtown San Francisco behind the Jack Tar Hotel. You start out at 5.30 coming from Livermore and to get there, and every morning a Greek test. Had a vocabulary test every morning, and guess what? Some of the greatest worship experiences I have is commuting to school. I could pray all the way to school. I could sing. I went through that toll booth many a time, wiping my eyes, because I could worship God anywhere. I could worship God at 80 miles an hour. Carolyn doesn't think that's possible, but I do. She thinks God gets out past 65. Uh, it goes on that he said, you don't know what you worship, but I want you to worship in spirit. Now, now this means it involves your whole being emotions, mind, everything. And the other element, now notice what else you worship him with. Truth. What kind of truth? National Geographic truth? How big the planet is? How many whales are out there? No. Truth about him. And where do you get truth about God? From God. The only thing we know about God is what he's revealed about himself because you can't know God unless God reveals himself. So he's revealed himself in nature. He's revealed himself in words right here and in his son. So God says, look at creation. This is my handiwork. Read my word that I preserved for you and examine the life of my son. I'm trying to talk to you. I want you to know me. I want you to know about me. So when we don't know the truth, uh, it's a self-imposed ignorance or we've not been exposed to it, uh, whatever. But God's not worship with fantasy. You can't make it up and it be worship. You can't invent this God. He won't accept it. He'll call you an idolater. You're calling me what I'm not. I want you to respond back to what I really am, what I really am. And that engages my mind for truth, the pursuit of it, and 
all of my inner being, with all my heart, my emotions, my... So I'm engaged with truth. I'm responding to the truth. Now, let's give an example. A lot of times in church life, in churches, there's this uh, polarization between the cognitive, cerebral believers and the uh, emotional, get a little excited, uh, a lot of a lot of goosebumps and a lot of that. And you'll talk to certain Christians, and they're in one camp or the other. God wants you in both camps. Because here's the way it goes. Um, emotions don't make anything true. I feel you don't love me. That doesn't make it true, Right? I feel that 2 plus 2 equals 5. No, emotion never can change fact. But when you know the truth, it ought to generate certain emotions. Okay? I heard two different words today from my wife that give me a great emotional response. One, happy Father's Day. It was a team effort. Two, I love you. I said, well, I'm glad you do. You should. <laughs> or, or, that's the sweetest thing I could hear after 52 years with this woman. She does love me. And I'll tell you, she wouldn't tell me if she didn't mean it. She's not a smoozer. Now, when you find out about God, and you say, oh, that's okay. Yeah? Is there anything else? You didn't get it. You didn't get it. No, you're still in the fog. You're in the fog. So, let's look at something about God. Five things. God is spirit. God is spirit. Now, that's not saying he's the Holy Spirit. He's not the Holy Spirit. He is spirit as to essence. The stuff that makes God is that God is spirit. Okay, now what in the world does that mean? Okay, you're, you are taking notes, aren't you? Because this is a cognitive experience. Let's give two definitions. Who is God? Here's the simplest you're ever going to hear it. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. That's as simple as we can say. He, this sets him apart from all other beings. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. That's that's who he is. Now, what is God? First, he's spirit. Now, what does that mean? He is made of spirit, or he is spirit. Uh, let's ask this question. If he's spirit, are there any other spirit beings in existence? Name yourself. Uh, okay, angels. Lucifer, which was a fallen angel, cherub, demons. And what do spirit beings have in common? Number one, you don't have to have a body to be a person. Right? You don't need flesh and bone to be a person. We think you do. So we say it's okay to abort what's in the womb because it's not a person. Uh-uh, not so. David said, I began 
at the point my father's sperm joined with my mother's egg. At that point, I began. Psalms 139. Psalms 51. So, spirit, now, of course, all other spirit beings had a beginning, but God means he's incorporeal, doesn't have a body. Uh, he's immaterial, uh, doesn't have flesh, bone. When it says the eyes of the Lord, these, these are human uh, handles to explain him, but uh, he knows everything. He doesn't have a human eye, okay? But there's comparisons made of him so we can get a handle on things. But God is pure spirit. Uh, it is amazing. He's not dependent upon matter. He doesn't need food. He doesn't uh, have anything that's tied to physical substance. No flesh, no bone. Uh, he's, he's totally a spirit being, but he has intellect, he has will, he has emotion. And so our God is a spirit into his substance. Now, here's something that's interesting. Well, I'll save that. Let's just keep going. Besides that, God is too self-existent, self-existent. And what we mean by that is he's the uncaused cause. He's the uncaused cause. Um, listen to what he, sa he says. I am that I am. Never I was. I am always being. I am that I am. Jesus said, I have life in myself. I wasn't dependent on being fathered, created, uh, God has no beginning. He's always existed. I mean, just get your uh, mind around that, that God, and when we say God, it'd be God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have always existed. Nobody created them. Nobody caused them to come to be. They are the self-existent God who's always been there. So they could speak things into order, created even Satan who rebelled, but he was created as Lucifer, a beautiful and wisest being that God ever made, who rebelled against God, but he's always been self-existent. Uh, he, he's the living God, and the uncaused cause, I, I think I tried to get my hands around that ever since I was a how. Could God exist without someone being there first? And I think this is kind of the insult of the evolutionary model to infer that accident, time, space, and what we still can't prove empirically, nobody can prove evolution. We've never found the missing link. We can't go back the billions of years that many just put out there that we got to have. See, if you don't think there's a creator back there, you need time, chance, uh, and uh, good hypotheses. 
because you need billions of years because if we're going to check the evolutionary model, it takes millions and even billions of years to get matter as we have it today. Instead, we who are theists, who believe in God, say, when you have the God that we have as revealed in the Bible, he can do this. He can make galaxies. He can make man. He was never made. He's self-existent. Spirit always existed. Never, never began. So, I worship a God that never had a beginning, not a God made with hands. It goes right against all forms of uh, idolatry, polytheism, many gods. No, no, this God has always existed. There was no eternity without him. God never needed a clock, never needed calendars. There was no time in eternity. Can you imagine? There was a time, there was no time. And here's another beautiful thing. Sometimes you'll hear a, <clears throat> a statement that God created man because he was lonely. Have you ever heard that? That is not true. You know why? There was always three of them. And they're always in perfect harmony, in perfect fellowship. God has never been alone since there's three who share the essence of God. And we'll go on. God is one God. We call this the unity, third thing, the unity of God. Deuteronomy 6.4, the great doctrinal statement of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, and we, it's called the Shema, and Hebrew it, Shema is here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He is one. Now, Something interesting, <clears throat> we'll look at it when we look at the Trinity. God is uniquely, there's only one God. Only one God. The phrase there is he's a compound unity. And that's how we understand he can be one and yet then be the Trinity. And it's this way. It was a word used of things that were compound but one, uh, one cluster of grapes, maybe individual grapes, but one cluster. He made the morning and the evening the first day. Two parts, one day. Uh, at almost, you, you take the man and the woman. You shall be one. It's a, there's a oneness between a man and a woman in marriage that's unique. It's a compound unity, two personalities, but there's a realm of oneness that's indescribable, hard to get your hands on. But our God is one, not many. One living God. So we're totally away from, some are tritheists. They think of, uh, we worship three different gods. No, we don't. We worship one God Shared by three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. For instance, Matthew 28, baptize them in the names, in what? Singular. Oh, singular. Why singular? One God. And the name of our God is Father, 
Son, Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. We'll get to that later. This God is one. This God, we use the phrase, it is composed of simplicity. It, it's used in theology. God's essence is simplicity. And what we mean by that is not intelligence. We're not talking about his intelligence. Simplicity is simplicity of composition. God is not made up. You know, you're complex. Look at you. Your flesh, your bone, your soul, your spirit, uh, your mind, uh, all these. We're complex. Many elements make up a human being. The hidden part, the soul, the inner life. And then, I mean, they've never x-rayed your soul. They can't find it. Maybe they think you have no soul, but you do. And soul was the Hebrew word for life principle. Where does the life principle come? You can't get it under an x-ray. But you can find bone. You can find muscle. You can find sinew. You can find these different parts of my anatomy. But then after all that, you don't have what the Bible calls the heart of the man. You can't get my heart under an x-ray machine. Only a pump, but not what the Bible means. The core of my being, where I think, where I feel, where I know, you can't x-ray that. That's made in the image of God. Can't be duplicated. It's unique. You can't find it in an animal. It's only in human beings who have the image of God, conscience, intellect, emotion, will, all of that making up the image of God even in fallen human beings. So we're complex. God and his spirit is simple. No, no complexity. Just simple composition. Finally, fifth thing we'll stop with this is God is immense. I love this. God is immense. Uh, it means this. God is uh, extends beyond everything ever, ever existed. And space is contained in God, but he's beyond space, beyond everything out there. God is so immense, he stands back from creation, including the solar system, earth, anything that's ever. God is so far, is so big, that he can look down on everything, and he's beyond space because he made space. Space has a real existence. God made space. God made time. Now, um, he's immense. Let, let's, let's take a little tour of that. Uh, take, you ready? Just say yes. Do it by faith. Okay? Uh, look at Isaiah uh, 66, 1. We'll just look at several verses that uh, would tell us this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be desires, uh, 
declares the Lord. So heaven is my throne, but let's look at more. Look at 1 Kings when Solomon is dedicating the temple. Listen to his prayer in 1 Kings 8, 827. When he's praying this prayer of dedication, he prays this, and he acknowledges it. But God, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. I know that this temple I built can in any way house the living God. He's immense. He occupies the heavens. He's got his throne up there. Now, watch this. Go to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Have to break in your Bible, but I want you to see some of these verses. Look at Ephesians 2. When Christ was resurrected from the dead, notice what it says in verse 9. 4, 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Christ came down to the earth from heaven. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. Isn't that interesting? He went far above well, what is there besides the heavens? You can't get beyond the heavens. Yes, you can. Now, he says it, that he might fill all things. Now, look at Hebrews 4.12. No, 4.14. For we have come... Oh, no, I want 414. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What's he saying? God the Son, to celebrate his victory over death and the grave, when he went up, he passed the first heaven, you know, the Bible says there's three heavens. You know that, don't you? 2 Corinthians 12, 1. There's three heavens. The first heaven you see by day is called the atmosphere. The second heaven you see by night is called the stratosphere. The third heaven is called heaven. You see it by faith. Three of them. But guess what? Beyond the third heaven, God could go out there, but what, you know what God had to do? He finally put boundaries on how far he goes out. He can go out as far as he wants, but he finally stopped out there somewhere. But it's beyond all of creation, and he's all the way up there, and he passed through the heavens, and he's telling the devil, as it were, he stripped demonic powers that it wanted to hold him back, Colossians 2. And he just kept going, going, and going, 
show that he could fill the whole universe, everything that was space, everything that's ever been created, everything out there. He said, I can go beyond you because I'm God. I'm immense. All of creation I am present with at any moment. I am everywhere at the same time. I'm an immense God. We use the word, he's omnipresent. That is simply saying another way of amplifying. Wherever there's something created, space, time, demons, angels, human beings, anything that's created, God is present in a real way. Listen to what the psalmist said. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I get away from you? I, if I run to the east, you're there. If I go to the south, you're there. I'm a God that you can't get away. You can't, there's nothing about you I don't know. I am present everywhere. An immense God. Listen to what Jesus said. I will be with you to the end of the age. Does that, is that true? Is he with us? Is he in this place? It's, you know what, if we could see in the spiritual world, I wonder how many spirit beings are in this place. According to Ephesians, angels attend church, and they watch the saints. They do. Ephesians 3, read it on your own. They, they attend, and they observe God's people. And they're probably scratching their head. Do you know what you have in God? And look at this. This immense God says something. Uh, I'll just raise these questions. How close is God to a believer? I, I heard inside. I heard indwell. Is God inside of his people? Now, what's scary, a man could be demon-possessed with three to 6,000 demons, and spirit beings are able to occupy the same space as matter and not become one with it. Is that amazing? That a human being, legion, the man's name is a legion, and it stood for a Roman legion that was between three to 6,000 troops. So, Jesus talking to this man I assume, because the head of the operation going on in your body is a man, a spirit being called legion, there could be at least 3,000 personalities in you, 3,000 different wills, because spirit beings have a will. They could rebel against God. They could disobey God, or they could obey God. But this one poor human being, this poor man, that lived in the caves and was naked and chained and bruised and bleeding. He said, you've been the inhabitation of spirit beings for who knows how long. When you read in the Gospels, you had children that were demon-possessed. They cast themselves in the fire, and Jesus had to cast the demons out of them. Now, now, here's something you can't hardly comprehend is God said, I'm going to live in my people. Now, you say, oh, big deal. No, because you don't know. You don't know what he said. 
in the Bible, the big deal was to build a temple. You fought for temple rights or to build. You know why? Here's the theology of the Old Testament. You want to follow this. Everybody, both the pagans and Jews, they wanted a place on earth where God and man could come together. So they built tabernacle, they built temples, and of course, sacrifices and priests. But the idea, will the transcendent God that's above all the universe, when can we ever get in touch with him? How can we ever come near someone that is all the way out there in immensity? And God basically said, I'll come down. I'll come down. I'll meet you at a place, altars, temples. And when they set a temple, that's where man and God could come into contact with each other. Now, follow this. Jesus said, I am God's temple on the earth. John 2 and John 1, 18. And he said, I'm tenting out among you to show you God. God is present, and God wants to meet you in Christ. That's exactly what he was saying. Then, when he went back to heaven, he tells his people, I'm going to do something for you. The Spirit has been alongside of you. He's been outside of you in the Old Testament. But the day is coming. He shall abide in you. I'm going to put my spirit in every child of God and turn your body into God's temple. You don't have to go to a place anymore. If you've gone to Christ and you've believed him, God has turned your body, your heart, your mind into his meeting place on the earth. God the Father said to be in you. Ephesians 4, 6 God who's above all is in you all. And he's talking about the Father. God the Son's in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ is in me. He that has the Son has eternal life. The Spirit is in every believer. It shall be like a river of living water. This spake ye of the Holy Spirit, which had not yet been given, but was given to the church on the day of Pentecost. You as a believer right now, God lives in you as the Father. The Son lives in you. The Spirit lives in you. You are the worship center on the earth right now. You, not a place, not a mountain, not a man, you. Now, I ask you this. Are you a worship center? Don't. You, you can think about it. Are you, what comes out of you? Worship or whatever? Complaining? Griping, no thanks maybe, or a bunch of other stuff. When, when do you think you've worshipped? In the last seven days, when did you worship God? How did you worship him? Is it by uh, just listening to music, uh, sermons? It takes your spirit, human spirit, the internal part of you, Combine with truth, and you can have a worship service. It's not dependent. Uh, it, it's what I think is a challenge to me when I watch much of the church world, what's going on. 
that there's a lot of preoccupation with the place. Uh, if it's not dark enough, it won't attract young people. If it's not this enough, it won't attract this. Uh, do you have a band? Are the guitars, anyone wearing Levi's? You know, you got to have that to have God show up. And all this preoccupation. Now, you don't have to look like the 50s, and you don't have to look old either. You don't have to have pews. Believe me, friends, those of us that met at Holy Ghost Hall did not sit in pews. We sat in chairs. You need to have a chiropractor as your best friend. They were terrible. I'm not into place. I'm not into ambiance. I'm not into decorations. I never dreamed I'd be able to have such a nice place to proclaim Christ. But today, a lot of emphasis, if you're going to grow, you've got to do this. And so many times it's a decoration model. It's a this, it's a color, it's feeling. It's just, and I understand, I understand, I understand, I think. But when I hear him say worship takes place where the human spirit is engaged and where truth is adored, you can worship God. So am I to walk in and see a bunch of Presbyterians worshiping God, singing songs written in Scotland in the 1500s, and the building is decorated in Presbyterian white and beautiful pews? Well, I, I can't worship here. Why can't you? Don't tell me you're tied to decorations. The thing you don't want to find in this place is images. See, images are an insult to God because it creates in the mind you thinking God is this size, that God is like the thing we made. And God says, you don't know I'm spirit. I'm not wood and silver and gold. You don't know you can't contain me in a box. I'm immense beyond the entire universe. Don't make anything in my likeness. Don't make anything a substitute. So when Protestantism broke out, all images are removed. No, we can have decoration, but no images. Israel, hear me. Make no images to help you portray God. You are worshiping the invisible, almighty, immense, simple, unified, self-existent God, and nothing you could ever make can approach the majesty of his person. There is nothing. I'd like for you to do this for me because this is a, a difficult assignment to unpackage God in front of a Sunday morning audience. Uh, if you don't understand what we're saying or if it's too hard, uh, if you'll email uh, Valley Bible Church directed to uh, Ron Hughes and say, I'm fed up with the sermon. I can't understand it. It's uh, not relevant. Uh, please let us know, and if we agree, we'll keep it. If we don't, we'll pray about it. But uh, God bless you. You can go.